Good morning and welcome. Uh, it's great that you can join us uh, wherever and whenever you watch this. Thank you, Stuart, for leading us this morning. Um, and it's it's very strange being here speaking to you, not knowing who's listening. And we're carrying on our summer series in Psalms with Psalm 32 this morning. When David wrote this psalm, just like me now, he had no idea who or when this psalm would be read or heard. But his message in this psalm is as relevant to us today as it was approximately 3,000 years ago when it was written. Unless this is your very first time listening to a Christian church, you're probably aware that Christians have a tendency to go on about the forgiveness of sins. If you've been listening into the series on Romans that we're partway through, you will know that Paul in his letter has been going on about our need for forgiveness for most of the first few chapters we've covered. And as Christians, we talk a lot about Jesus, the Son of God, his death and resurrection, and how this has meant we can be forgiven for our sins. If you're like me, I think our natural tendency when we start talking about forgiveness is to feel reticent, perhaps sad and perhaps guilty. I suspect that's because deep down we all know we fall short of our own desired standards for ourselves, let alone God's. And as soon as we talk about forgiveness, we have to recognise this fact. But in this psalm, David shows us what forgiveness is, what the benefits of forgiveness are, and how we should feel about it. So let's read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose iniquity the Lord does not count against him, through through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledge, go, I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. We're going to see in this psalm three benefits of forgiveness, being blessed, protection and guidance. David is going to weave his personal testimony of confessing his sin and receiving forgiveness through the psalm. So let's dive in. In verses 1 to 2, David tells us of the first benefit of forgiveness. And he tells us that the one receiving forgiveness is blessed. In fact, by the repetition, he's saying that they are doubly blessed. They are blessed, blessed. And by blessed, David doesn't mean some vague connotation that they will be okay in the way we say bless you when someone sneezes. The wording used means happy, overjoyed. It suggests exuberance of feeling. So the one who is forgiven is someone who is overjoyed, overjoyed. And we know something of what he's getting at here, don't we? The relief of how someone reacts when you've done something wrong and the person is fine about it. I'm sure you've all had experiences like this. 
I know I have. One that sticks in my mind is when, as a teenager, I'd passed my driving test. I was driving a small pickup. I was working with Dad, so it was an early company car. Um, anyhow, I was attending Reading College, and I drove to school the next day, the day after I passed my driving test, only to crash in the gravel car park. I went too fast through a deep puddle, and I lost the back end and hit another car, which then hit a Fiat Panda that was written off. Uh, the pickup was fine, only had a little dent. What can I say? Uh, I've had no major crashes since, just a couple of dents, lesson learned. And anyhow, I felt terrible. Um, I felt awful, and some friends helped me to get home. Uh, Mum was great, but Dad was in Botswana on a building trip, and the only communication was by letter or the real occasional phone call. Uh, this was the days before internet and messaging and all the rest of it. So I had to wait some time before knowing his dad's reaction. And it was all fine, no problem. But I'm sure we've all experienced that feeling of dread and then relief when we're forgiven. Well, David's saying that's nothing in comparison to the overjoyedness we feel at God's forgiveness. But to understand why that's the case, we need to understand what we've been forgiven from and the nature of the forgiveness that we receive. So what does David say has happened to make someone overjoyed, overjoyed? Well, he says their transgressions have been forgiven. He says their sins are covered and their iniquities are not counted against them. And you might be thinking that he's just repeating himself because it's a song or a poem. But David is making some serious points by his use of language here. The phrases are translated differently because they are different words with different meanings. And these details are important and express the depth and the importance of the sin and forgiveness that David is talking about. And firstly, he uses three words for, forgive, for sin. He says they are transgressions, sin, iniquity. Now, transgression, that means uh, a term used for meaning rebellion. And in this case, it's rebellion against God. That is going our own way, ignoring our creator, thinking we know best. And then he uses the word sin. And this means missing the target or law breaking. And it could be our own standards of behavior, our country's laws or God's law. And it's not necessarily deliberate. And then iniquity. This means both a crooked act, immorality, unfairness. So deliberate action to be unfair, crooked to others. And I don't know about you, but to me, that seems to cover just about everything in relation to sin. Deliberate rebellion, breaking of law, whether deliberate or not, not even be able to meet our own standards of behaviour, being unfair or crooked to others. I look at that list and what they mean and realise there is no wriggle room for me. There is no ability for me to say I'm okay before God. And we've been seeing this in the series in Romans. Paul has been laying out to us that it doesn't matter what our background, whether it's our race, our religion, our gender, our wealth or anything else. None of it qualifies us to stand justified before God. 
we all sin and fall short. And Paul says in chapter 5, verse 12, that the natural outcome of sin is death. That is the penalty, death. Not just physical death, but eternal death to God, being cut off from him. This is what the Bible calls hell. And hell is a reality. The Bible is very clear on that. If you step back and look at this world, you see a mixture of good things and bad things. Good things like compassion, harvests, justice, peace, as well as bad things such as abuse, disease, natural disasters, war. The only reason the good things happen is because of God. He sustains the world and intervenes in it. If you imagined only the good things, that's what the new earth will be like when Jesus returns and far better. But if you imagine only the bad without any restraint from God, as we see at present, well, that's what hell will be like and worse. And that's the just punishment for sin. But having shown us the breadth of what sin covers, David shows us the breadth of God's forgiveness. And David uses three words for forgiveness. These are forgiven, covered and not counted. And forgiven means to carry That is, the one who forgives carries the cost of the offence and thus not letting it destroy the relationship. This is why, as Christians, we speak so much of Jesus. He paid the price for us. He bore the cost of our sin so that we don't have to. And instead of being destined for hell, we can join him on the new earth. Covered means covering the offence so that it's no longer visible. Sometimes we see images of redacted documents on TV, but this is much more than that. It's like the perfect tipex, so perfect you can't see it's there. The page is blank and he says not counted. This means that when God sees us, he does not see the litany or list of offences we have caused. He has left them out of the account that we have with him. When we say we forgive someone, we might well do so, but we struggle to do so to that depth. We often hear the phrase, I forgive, but I can't forget. And we don't, and we know, don't we, that even though someone has forgiven us, we still remember and they still remember. And this in some way affects our relationships. But God's forgiveness is far superior and complete. In Psalm 103, David says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And this isn't a reluctant forgiveness. We just have to look at the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told to realise that God the Father is longing to forgive, longing for us to come to him. He's not a grudging forgiver. When I look at these terms and their meanings, I can't help but agree with Peter Craig, who in his commentary on this psalm says, they specify the full dimensions of human evil, but also indicate the completeness of the divine deliverance from evil that make happiness possible. God's forgiveness means that our relationship with him is utterly restored. No wonder David says that those who are forgiven are overjoyed overjoyed 
David then adds a further phrase. He says, in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, David can hardly be saying that once forgiven, that person is no longer deceitful. That's hard to reconcile to the rebellion, wrongdoing and failure he's already acknowledged. And we know it's an ongoing reality and battle in our lives. Rather, he's saying that the one who seeks forgiveness can only do so if they are not deceiving themselves about their sinfulness. That is, they are not in denial about their sinfulness and the seriousness of it and their need for forgiveness. I'm sure you've seen this and probably like me, you've done it. Someone says, sorry, but. And the but means we're excusing ourselves trying to justify our behaviour. It's not just, sorry, I was wrong. David is saying we can't be like that with God. If we do, we are deceiving ourselves. We're certainly not deceiving God. Sin is sin. There is no excuse. We have to recognise that before God. And there's nothing we can do to earn our forgiveness. The only thing we have to do is to be honest to God and honest with ourselves about our sin. Having told us the first blessing of forgiveness from God, that of being overjoyed, overjoyed at having our sin wiped out, no matter what they are, David goes on to give his personal experience, his testimony of that forgiveness. He wants us to realise that this isn't some theoretical knowledge. It's ours to experience. He experienced it and so can we. The first thing to say is we don't know if this relates to a specific time in David's life. He doesn't say. But it is clear that the sin he's talking about is significant and our natural inclination would to be think, would to think, would be to think it relates to the incident with Bathsheba. And we see details of this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And basically David sees Bathsheba who's Uriah's wife. He's away fighting for David. And David abuses his power as king to commit adultery with her. She becomes pregnant. In order to cover this up, he recalls Uriah from battle. But Uriah refuses to go home whilst on duty, so he's sent back to the front. So David can't pretend it's Uriah's child. But David sends instructions to the battlefield commander to put Uriah in the most dangerous position on the siege of the city and then withdraw the troops around him, not only killing Uriah, but also other soldiers. The son born to Bathsheba then dies, and it's not until some time later that Nathan the prophet confronts David and then he confesses his sin to God. So whether this psalm was written at the time or later, this is probably the backdrop for the psalm and something the listener would have been aware of. And David tells us that his bones wasted. He was groaning. God's hand was heavy on him. His strength was sapped. It would be easy to think that David is talking figuratively here, but there's nothing to suggest that is the case. There seems to be a clear physical effect on David linked to the unconfessed sin. And David descri- David's description here raises a question that often troubles us. Is there a direct link between our sin and, say, an illness, 
or hardship we suffer? And the answer is yes and no. Because firstly, yes, sin does have consequences. If we drive too fast, we should expect a speeding ticket. So there are consequences to our sins. But that's not really what David is inferring here. It's that God seems to have given him a specific issue due to the sin he's committed. And this isn't the only time in the Bible this occurs. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 says that many in the church are weak and ill because of the way that those who had plenty were treating those who had little when sharing communion. So there are instances that God seems to allow hardship or illness on his people, and that's an important distinction, his people, in order to get them to repent from something. He uses it as a form of discipline to those he loves and cares about. That's discipline, not punishment. So should we see all illnesses or troubles as God's disciplining us for our sin? Well, no, there is nowhere in the Bible that suggests that. I'd say this sort of direct linkage is not the normal. It would be a rare occurrence. And we see that because there are only a few occurrences in the Bible. And there are a few principles we need to bear in mind. Firstly, God is not vindictive. He doesn't punish us as our sins deserve. He's not malicious. He only uses it to address a sin, perhaps where that person is ignoring God. It's a prompt to repent, not a punishment. But it's God seeking to discipline those he loves and bring them, bring us back to him. And we need to remember that God is a God of order. He's not trying to get us to second guess him. If he's disciplining us, he will make it very clear to us. And David confirms this in verse 9 when he tells his listener not to be like a stubborn mule. And we can imagine a farmer trying to drive a cart or a plough with a mule and it's distracted. It's not willing to go where he wants it to go. And he has to put on a bit and a bridle to try and steer it where he wants to go. David's warning to us is not to be stubborn in confessing our sin. If we look at the incident with Bathsheba, this wasn't a one incident sin. This occurred over many weeks and months with attempts to cover up what had happened. It's hard to imagine over that time that David didn't once think that some of his actions were wrong, but he chose to ignore whatever was pricking his conscience and persisted with his sinful behaviour. David's saying, I was stubborn. Learn from my example. I suspect, like me, you've been there. We all have a stubborn streak in us. For some of us, stronger than others, but we all have it. And David's warning to us is not to be like that. The reason being that God may well discipline us in order to bring us back. But far better not to be stubborn in the first place and confess our sin to God. And David really wants us to hear this. In verse 6, he says, don't leave it. He says, pray, confess, while you may be found. This forgiveness from God won't be available forever. It will cease either with our death, over which it has become only too clear recently, we have no control, or when Jesus returns. We need to act. 
If the need for forgiveness from God has resonated with you this morning, can I urge you to hear David's warning, act upon it. Don't leave it, no matter who you are, where you are, whether you've just considered this for the first time, whether you've heard it all before, but have drifted away, or whether you confessed your sin to God just the other day, act on it. If you'd like to talk to someone, contact us. Either there'll be details on the notices or the website, or someone you know who comes to Canet Valley. Contact us. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you. And then having told us how he felt about confessing his sin, David shows us the result of confessing our sin. Yes, we receive forgiveness. That's been clearly stated. But look what he says in verse 5. You forgave the guilt of my sin. We struggle with guilt, don't we? Even when we have asked for forgiveness, that guilt often returns. And the devil loves that. Because we know that when we feel guilt for past confessed sins, it weighs us down and makes us less effective and less likely to talk to God. So when you feel this burden of past guilt, talk to God. Ask him to help you feel the truth that your guilt has been forgiven. And this lack of guilt doesn't mean a blase attitude to the consequences of sin. We have to keep that tension between not feeling guilty about after confessing and having no deceit. Lack of guilt is not the same as having, is not having to live with the consequences of our sin. Just as David had to deal with the consequences of our sin with Bathsheba, so we have to deal with any consequences of our sin. God's forgiveness isn't a magic sweeping brush that just hides it all away. That wouldn't be justice. But the depth of his forgiveness allows us, over time, to put aside ongoing guilt for sins that we have confessed to God. So that was the first blessing of forgiveness. We are overjoyed, overjoyed that the depth of God's forgiveness covers the depth of our sin fully. In verse 7, David tells us the second blessing of forgiveness. He tells us that God protects us. We can find refuge in him. He is our hiding place. This encompasses the stresses and strains of everyday life. But much more than that, David is referring to the refuge we find in God from the punishment we deserve for sin. We are surrounded with songs of deliverance. God is offering us eternal refuge. And then in verse 8, it's as if God himself interrupts the psalm. And we see God himself telling us the third blessing of forgiveness. He tells us that not only will he forgive us and protect us, but that he will instruct us, teach us and counsel us. Again, we see the use of three specific words, all dealing with leading and guiding someone, but each covering different aspects. We've all been taught at some point in school or work, but if we put together all the best minds, teachers, counsellors, mentors the world has ever known, if we put them all together, they would pale into insignificance compared to the God and creator of this world. 
who better to lead us than the creator himself? And this isn't just showing us how to do our jobs better or something mundane. This is showing us how to live. We were destined to live a certain way, but sin has spoilt that. And we need instruction, guidance on how to live as we were designed to. And David, having exalted us to confess our sins and seek forgiveness, having told us of the multiple blessings we receive from doing so, ends this psalm in verse 11 the only way possible, by praising God, singing and shouting for joy. Why? Because God, by God, we are reckoned as righteous and upright in heart. And this is only and completely possible through Jesus. And this is the reason why, as Christians, we tend to go on about him a fair bit. But to be fair, once we've started to grasp all that we receive when we seek forgiveness from God, why wouldn't we? Let's pray. Father God, we stand before you and we acknowledge that we are sinners, that we fall short of even our own standards, let alone yours. But Father God, we stand in joy and gratitude at the forgiveness that you pour out on us through Jesus Christ. And we just give you praise and honour for your mercy towards us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to be those that confess our sin readily, that come to you readily, day by day, and we just give you thanks and praise for your great love and your mercy that you show us. In Jesus' name, amen.